Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And today's show is sponsored by Nationwide Coins. Plan for retirement. Nationwide Coins can help. We are broadcasting just outside of Washington, D.C. And let me assure you, today's episode is not just compelling, it's monumental. Whether you're a history enthusiast, a military aficionado, or simply someone who values the untold stories of extraordinary individuals, you have tuned in at the perfect time. Today's special guest is... New York Times bestselling author Joshua Levine. We are privileged to have with us Joshua Levine, the New York Times bestselling author of Dunkirk. Josh Levine is a man of many talents, a lawyer, an actor, a documentary producer, to name but a few. But today, we're zeroing in on his latest literary triumph. His new book is titled The Authorized Illustrated History of the SAS. This isn't your run-of-the-mill military history book. This is the authorized illustrated history of the SAS, featuring a foreword by Mike Sadler, the earliest surviving member of the SAS, born from a strategic deception to mislead the Axis powers during World War II. The SAS evolved into a group of men whose courage and resilience have become the stuff of legend. What elevates this book are the never-before-seen photographs and unheard stories that bring the SAS's wartime history to life in vivid, astonishing detail. We're going to talk about that and more, including hearing from author Joshua Levine read from his book about the real SAS. Let me kick off with a a small chapter that I've called That Other SAS. Mm -hmm. So here we go. In May 1942, as the SAS and the Long Range Desert Group drove northwest from Siwa towards Benghazi, they encountered the Wire, a six-foot-tall, 30-foot-wide barbed wire entanglement erected by the Italians to mark the border between Libya and Egypt. There were plenty of gaps in the wire, and vehicles were able to pass through without much difficulty. The enemy lines were about 130 miles further on, and once in Axis territory, the group travelled by night. During the day, they laid up with vehicles camouflaged and a man on lookout. One afternoon, as everybody tried to sleep in the searing heat, the lookout came running to say he'd spotted a vehicle moving in the distance. Now, whatever this vehicle was, it was now speeding away, presumably to alert the enemy to their presence. David Sterling and Fitzroy McLean leapt into the blitz buggy and roared off in pursuit. Sterling's manic driving soon brought them within distance, but the suspicious vehicle spotted them and tried to accelerate away. But the buggy was faster, and both cars soon ground to a sandy halt. Two men in dirty khaki shirts and shorts climbed out of the other vehicle and walked over. When asked who they were, one of them replied in a heavy accent, SAS. This, thought David Sterling, was a clumsy attempt at a bluff. His SAS was now so well known that enemy soldiers were trying to pass themselves off as members to the organization's own leader. But in fact, the men were not bluffing. They were members of the SAS, 
a South African survey unit whose job was to map the desert. They'd simply been getting on with their work when, to their surprise, a Ford station wagon had suddenly come after them. This odd little encounter with allies, who really were known as the SAS, occurred as El Detachment was gaining an impressive reputation for originality and daring. Yet however innovative the unit might have seemed, however singular its exploits, it was not evidently the only SAS in a Western desert. It was not even the first. Caution against hubris, it seems, could appear in many forms. That, of course, is our guest today, author Joshua Levine. You do not want to miss this episode. The book is teeming with rich content, exclusive interviews, and personal testimonies. It's not just a read, it's an experience. So stay tuned and prepare to be enlightened and entertained. Are you ready to delve into the untold stories of the SAS and hear Josh Levine bring this history to life? Don't go anywhere. We are just getting started. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, author Joshua Levine. Joshua Levine, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Paul. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. I hope your day is good and all is well with you and yours. You've written this wonderful new book, SAS, The Authorized Illustrated History of the SAS. Great, great book. I can't recommend it enough to our audience. We'll put links so that our audience can find out more information about your book, about you, about your writing, all that you're doing. But congratulations on this fantastic book. Thank you very much indeed. So I want to talk to you about the foundation of the SAS, because I think our audience is going to be you know, very interested in that, maybe not as familiar as I certainly was not as familiar. The story is a fascinating one, too, Joshua Levine. It, it's really one of those kind of fabrica- fabricated stories that misled so many and, yeah. and misled the Axis. I wonder if you talk about that unusual beginning because it really shaped the unit and, and all I the mission. I mean, I'll say, you know, just, just a you know, very, very general beginning. The SAS was, you know, a, a special forces unit, you know, the, the, the first really uh, effective uh, special forces unit on, on on the British side, certainly the one that's become the most well-known, um, you know, like a, a sort of precursor of the, the, the US Rangers, I suppose you could say. Um, and it began in the most unlikely circumstances, you know, it became this sort of really muscular, effective group that was raiding behind enemy lines and 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 um, sort of appearing like a like a like a mist, like a cloud out of the desert and, and doing its damage and running away. But it began as an entire fraud, as a fake, as something that never really existed. What what happened was you had this really extraordinary man called Dudley Clark, who was the father of strategic deception. He really almost single-handedly created the idea of um, and the practice of strategic deception in, in, in the Second World War. And he was sent out to uh, the Middle East at the end, very end of 1940. And it, it, his job was to deceive um, the enemy, the Axis, of, about strategic plans. So what he decided to do, one, one, one of the things he decided to do was to, to try and make um, the 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 British the the uh, uh, British forces seem much stronger than they really were to to to, to the enemy, and uh, he they the, the British had captured an Italian officer uh, in the desert who they'd read his diary and his diary said we 
we firmly believe that the, the, the British have parachute troops in, in the region, in the Middle East. Now, British didn't have any parachute troops in the Middle East, but this, to Dudley Clark, to the deceiver, gave him an opportunity. He would push at an open door. If they already believed it, he could he could help them to believe it. He could set up a fake parachute unit. Mm-hmm. And the way he did this was in, in, in a number of different things, but really the main strand of it, one thing he did, which was proved to be effective, he, he got two ordinary soldiers, um, ordinary soldiers from, they were in Palestine at the time, and he brought them to Cairo and he put them in fake uniforms um, with parachute badges all over them. And he gave them a script to learn. And the script was all about being members of a parachute unit that had done its training, was about to get going in the Middle East. And he gave them, these two ordinary men gave them, it was a pretty difficult task, because what they had to do was, for, for several days, basically go around Cairo and around the pyramids and around cafes and Cairo Zoo and nightclubs and everywhere in this fake uniform. Um, and people were going to come up to them and ask them questions. And they had to basically start off by saying, I'm sorry, I, ca- I can't tell you anything. And then soften a bit and say, well, OK, I can I can tell you this. I can tell you a little bit and then become garrulous and sort of open up with the fake story. So it had to be completely believable. But at first they had to seem as if they were blocking and then they had to open. up. So difficult acting job, actually. <laughs> um, and anyway, they did it. And it seems to have worked. I mean, the idea was that not only would local people hear and British troops would hear, but but Axis spies would hear the story would basically get back to 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 the enemy and it seems that it did and the and 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 the the germans put the this fake sas on a list of of known units or supposedly known units and uh, and and it was a it was a great success and so when several months later you had well it, that is a, another story that i cover in the book but you had um basically men uh trying to set up what became the real sas where did they look for inspiration? There was already this fake unit that, that the enemy believed in. So they just, the real unit, just assumed the identity of the fake unit. And that included the name, Special Air Service. So that's how the SAS got its name. But more to the point, that's how it really got its start. And then I had the great fun. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I found the, in the National Archives in London, I found um, the the um, uh, file about this fake, this this deception operation called Operation Abeam, which set up the fake SAS. And I found these two names of these two soldiers that were sent to do the the, the, the acting job. And one of them was Smith. I wasn't going to find him. But the other one had quite an unusual name, which was Gurman. Hmm. And it said he came from Wolverhampton, which is a town just outside Birmingham in England. And um, quite an unusual name. So, And this is not, you know, Poirot-style detective work. I Googled <laughs> Gurman Wolverhampton. And up came a taxi company and i <laughs> phoned it and obviously they were expecting me to book a, 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 a minicab but i didn't i asked you know i got through to a man named german and um was running it and i asked about you know did you have any relatives he told me his father was in the real sas during the war which was extraordinary i mm. said well did you know about anything about a, a deception operation he said no no dad never ever spoke about that but he was in the real sas so i then went to the sas archive where i was already working and found they had the file or the photographic album of this german because he did later become a member of the actual sas but they never known anything about the deception operation 
the, the SAS archive, the SAS association had not known anything about it. So it was a lot of fun <laughs> to put this all together. So basically, this German had done so well on this acting exercise with Dudley Clark setting up the fake SAS <laughs> that he'd been given a commission. Uh, so he became an officer. He joined the commandos. Then he joined the real SAS. This was in 42 when the SAS was already underway. So he joined all the legends, people who became, were even then legends of the SAS, people like David Sterling and Paddy Main, and was never able to tell them that he had been a member of the SAS before they had even set it up. <laughs> and so, it, you know, it's, it, you, once you start getting into stories like this, you realize this is worthwhile. This is new <laughs> material. And it makes the whole thing, you know, an exciting episode. Anyway, so so... They set up so fake SAS. Then you had David, really David Sterling and Jock Lewis were the two men who together, I would say, created the real uh, SAS. They both came out of the commandos. Commando units had been sent to uh, the Middle East in early in 41 or earlier in 41, but they had not really been used properly. The, 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 um, they, they found themselves floundering with very little to do. And so you know, they or certainly Jock Lewis at first, a number of these commandos who were very sort of, you know, uh, proactive people who didn't want to sit doing nothing. They came up with ideas. And Jock Lewis came up with an idea of his own for a parachute group, which didn't work at first. But then David Sterling, who was a great kind of PR man who was very well connected and knew everybody and was able to talk a great game. He got involved. And between the two of them, they set up the SAS with, with Jock Lewis kind of organizing it on the inside and organizing the training, making it up as he went along, with parachute training and people jumping off the back of trucks, simulating landings and all this kind of thing. And David Sterling getting it well known and dealing with the higher ups and the people in authority and turning the SAS into um, a, a well known and you know respected organization. So the two of them kind of work together to keep all, all bases covered. Hmm. Amazing story. I, I'm just smiling because I you know I'm thinking, you know, here German is, he 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 gets the part, you know. <laughs> he just yes, he moves from from one side of the organization into the real side of the organization. The other name that jumped out at me as I was reading through the book is a name by the name uh, a man by the name of Bill Frazier. Mm. A little bit more not as well known perhaps, but yeah. instrumental in shaping. Was he on the fake SAS side or the real yeah. maybe he, tell he us a little bit of <laughs> He was a commando as well. Uh -huh. So many of the early ones were commandos. They they all really came out of the commandos. Um, and he, he's a, he's a fascinating man because he's very untypical. You know, so many of these SAS, um, soldiers were, you know, big characters, you know, they, they very often had to be, um, you know, they, they, they were doing a new job. They were doing an incredibly dangerous job. They were doing, you know, the, they were adventurous people, um, and for the most part, you know, those adventurous people were also quite outgoing, but they weren't all. And Bill Fraser is such an interesting man because I, I just really like him. Mm -hmm. um, he was, first of all, very, very Scottish. I mean, one one man who I got to know, um, uh, uh, the, the oldest surviving member of the SAS, 103 years, still alive, 103 years old. Um, um, he described him as the most Scottish man you'd ever met. Very Scottish accent, but also very gentle um, uh, and very unassuming. Uh, and, you know, the, w w one story about him from a bit later on um, uh, in, in the desert 
uh, is that he, uh, he he was behind enemy lines and an entire group of Italians were in front of him. He was hidden um, behind them, uh, behind some rocks. And he got his grenade out, basically, to finish them off. And he was about to toss it. And then he just thought again and thought about the families of these people and thought about the lives these people had ahead. And he put it back. Mm. And I, I, I find that just in itself very moving. Mm-hmm. That, you know, these people were, they were killers. You know, there's no two ways about it. They mm-hmm. had to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it's what they were trained for. And it's what they did. Um, and here was a man who was willing to put that aside momentarily to show his um, intrinsic humanity. But anyway, this that's getting ahead of ourselves a little because, at, at, you know, earlier on um, in, in, in the war, um, he was, well, he was, Bill Fraser was probably gay. Um, he was certainly taunted by other people in the SAS uh, about his character, his personality, his sexuality. Um, and he was immensely courageous and immensely good um, at his job. And what he's sort of remembered for, certainly by me remembered for, is how he, he carried out a very early raid, which is kind of the classic SAS raid of all time. It was very simple. Um he was dropped by the Long Range Desert Group, which was this organization um, in trucks, which acted initially as, as kind of the chauffeurs for the, the SAS around the desert. So the Long Range Desert Group um, picked up Fraser uh, and a handful of others, drove them across the desert, set them down 15 miles from their target, which was an aerodrome at, at Jabia. So each of the men had eight Lewis bombs, now named after Jock Lewis. These were small uh, grenades that that were developed by Jock Lewis, the first member uh, of of the SS, and they were all carrying them. Uh, each man was carrying eight of them, and it, they were very small, um, and they could be stuck uh, on air, aircraft wings and on noses. So at night, they stepped; these men stepped onto the airfield. They waited till dark, stepped onto this enemy airfield, and they placed these bombs on the wings and the noses of the planes. And that included a, a large number of completely new Messerschmitt 109s. And they set the time delays. They had little time pencils uh, for just a few minutes, and they made off. They got away. The Long Range Desert Group picked them up again, took them back to their base, and they completely destroyed 37 aircraft. Wow. Which is, if you think about it, is far yes. better than the Royal Air Force could have done. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it... it, it so many of those early raids had complications. They weren't quite well planned enough. They were, you know, they were working their way through difficulties. This one went off beautifully, and it went off beautifully in in great part because Bill Fraser was so quietly effective. And Fraser himself, I mean, he carried on. He stayed in the SAS through, throughout the war. He fought in Italy, fought in France, um, and he was wounded in France finally. And, but for a long part of that time, he he was effectively an alcoholic. Um, he just took, really took to the bottle. Um, I think the problem was, and I one has to be careful about being a, 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 a sort of part-time psychologist when when you're working on these kind of books. You know, you are not qualified. But having said that, there were others who said that that he completely believed he was going to die. He didn't believe he would make it through the war. So he was you know, a, a kind of a dead man walking. Mm-hmm. And then when he did make it through, 
um, he was unable to deal with the life that he wasn't expecting. And he was drummed out of the army in 1946 for, for, for drinking. He became homeless. Um, he committed a string of burglaries uh, after the war, ended up in prison and died. Uh, he was derelict and, and, and died just 58 years old. You know, as longtime listeners of the show, you can be confident that I am a believer in the power of expertise, whether it's choosing the right guest for you all, whether it's choosing the right doctor for a medical procedure or hiring a contractor to renovate my home, I go to the experts. It's the same principle when it comes to safeguarding your financial future. And that's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to the experts at Nationwide Coins. This podcast is brought to you by Nationwide Coins. Maybe you're unsure about investing in precious metals. Nationwide Coins has consultants you can actually call. They're real people. They will guide you, especially valuable for those of us in the 60-plus age community. I don't know if I showed you the coin that they sent me. I will post a high-resolution picture of the coin just so you can see its beauty. I've got to tell you, it's not just a coin. It's not just a piece of metal. It is a piece of history. The fact that you can talk to a real human, again, this is priceless stuff. Let me mention Nationwide Coins' trustworthiness to thousands of satisfied customers. Nationwide Coins is an A-plus, better business bureau rated business. They have a 4.6 out of 5 on Trustpilot. Need I say more? Well, what about additional perks? Let's not forget that they offer free shipping and insurance on all orders. So if you want to work with the gold standard in the gold industry, head to nationwidecoins.com slash NOB and use promo code NOB at checkout for your first one ounce gold coin at no dealer markup. That's nationwidecoins.com slash NOB. One last time for the exclusive offer, nationwidecoins.com slash NOB and use code NOB. And if you call, please don't forget to mention our promo code NOB or they won't know we sent you. There you have it, folks. Secure your financial future with Nationwide Coins, the experts in the field. Now let's get back to our interview with Joshua Levine. Well, it's all, it's all amazing stuff. And the research uh, is incredible, uh, Josh Levine. It, th- I want to talk about the photographs, but the picture credits are incredible too. How did you get access? Really, in, in my understanding, my research, I found that you got exclusive access to the SAS archives. Is that right? How, how did that come about? People have had access before. So mm-hmm. I can't at all claim to be, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, have, have exclusive access. But I did have very good access and... I was very lucky to be working, you know, with the with the archivists in um, w- inside the SAS Association, and they were incredibly helpful. And I mean, so you know, the, the, it, it was very interesting. I mean, they have a large number of photographs. Part of the problem is, you know, working out who who they are, um, you know, what these pictures were of. And, and the SAS are very well known for, you know, driving jeeps in. The Second World War, they started driving them in, in, in the desert when the Long Range Desert Group, um, you know, they decided they didn't want to be reliant on the Long Range Desert Group anymore. They wanted to drive there themselves. Part of the problem there was that most, most of them didn't know how to drive because if you were working class growing up in Britain in the 1930s and the Depression, you didn't learn to drive. So they had to give a lot of impromptu driving lessons. But anyway, the, the um, so they started um, driving, and in the archive, you have many, many, many pictures of men in jeeps. 
um, without necessarily any idea who they were. So, so part of the, even though there were these wonderful, wonderful pictures, part of the, 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 the process was sort of filling it down to find out, you know, who it was you were dealing with. And then I also got very, well, I mean, didn't just have photographs. They also had, you know, interviews and, 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 and written archives as well, which made my life a great deal easier. And then also I managed to find, um, uh, well, my, I mentioned the 103-year-old Mike Sadler, mm-hmm. um, and then other people, family members of um, of SAS men. So, for example, um, I I, um, I found one particular, uh, uh, the daughter of a, a SAS man called John Tonkin, who arrived a little bit later um, when when they were in Italy. Actually, no, he was in the desert. He was in the desert towards the end, and. Um, uh, and and he had taken a camera around with him and had this astonishingly good archive of photos, hmm. um, which you know photos of, of men in action that he'd taken pictures of people actually involved in the fight, which is you know really gold dust and hmm. and fine and and um, and also what he'd done for his family was to take all the photographs and record uh, an interview saying well in this one I'm doing this this is x and y they're doing this so i had the key to to them as well so i got very lucky there and and again finding other people who had their own photographs who had family photographs um and then sometimes you know when you're bringing it outside um figures into the story you know like t lawrence or whoever mm-hmm. else then to other sources to try and find um you know photographs and again, always trying to find the less obvious photographs, I think, because, you know, the SAS is not a new subject. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, I mean, it's, to some audiences, perhaps to, it's lesser known to an American audience, mm-hmm. but certainly to a British audience, it's, it's, it's not a new subject. So, you know, my, my fight, all fight is putting it a bit strongly, but my aim was always to, you know, not to show the obvious or mm-hmm. to tell the obvious you know, you've got to tell the story, obviously, but if you can do it in a way that hasn't been done before, if you can show photographs, if you can, you know, like the Germin story, mm-hmm. never told before, a wonderful way into the whole story because it's totally new mm-hmm. and, and just much more exciting. Well, partly it's a great story and relevant, but partly also it's new. So, so you're, you know, you're not telling anybody something they already know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, that's what makes it worthwhile. Oh my gosh, it, it's so worthwhile! I, yeah, I, I recommend the book highly to our audience, especially those uh, you know here in the U.S. that might not be as familiar with the SAS. But the photos are a, a real treat, and they do tell a very special story. You know, you mentioned T. E. Lawrence, and and mm-hmm. I love the photo of Lowell Thomas, who yes. we can talk about in just a, a moment with regard to T. E. Lawrence. But that photo in the book is just really something i mean it just jumps out at you he 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 looks like he's wearing almost a tuxedo he's a real dandy in that photo and it's it's just an amazing element i i thought it just enhanced all of the book and and i wondered when you saw that photo of little thomas that must have been the one for you and just tells such a great story of kind of who he is and and when you can find yes i mean the photograph is thomas wearing a, a kind of a I suppose a desert hat, but he's wearing <laughs> he's wearing a bow tie and a wing collar and, and a wing a, collar, yeah. A jacket that's a bit sort of desert and and um you know, it's it yes, it it it, it tells you who you're dealing with, doesn't yeah, it? And if yeah. you can find if you can find photographs like that, which are 
you know, shorthands to, um, you know, to, to, to the story, then, then it's great. I mean, it, it, it gives you, you know, and, and the photos of, of Lawrence, you mm-hmm. know, this, yeah. you can't, you can't, you, you can't find a bad photograph of T. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> They're all I so that too. <laughs> wonderfully odd. And, and, um, you know, uh, I mean, the, the, um, he, he really was a sort of inspiration to, to the SAS. And he was, he was, you know, in the way that the SAS, you know, that what they did was to uh, appear, come out of the desert and, you know, attack behind the lines. I mean, in, in North Africa, it was specifically mainly, not only, but mainly um, uh, attacking airfields. But, you know, you had, you had this large, um, uh, area to train behind the lines, which ordinarily would be, you know, people just sort of taking it easy. And, but when the SAS existed and when Lawrence existed, they were in terror because they didn't know when these Lawrence stroke the SAS would appear out of the desert and, and with no warning whatsoever. Um, and so they became sort of you know, this, I think it was described a shapeless threat drifting about like a gas in the silent <laughs> desert. And that was, that was a description of Lawrence, but it could equally have gone for, for, for the SAS. And it were real psychological, well, psychological boost to your own side mm-hmm. and a psychological terror to, to, to the other side. So, you know, not only did it have its practical use, but it had its psychological use as well. Lawrence was really his own man. He, but he did fit in to the SAS and and there was uh, you know and, and correct me here if i'm wrong but it, it seemed to be almost a, a, a merging of the two capabilities with Lawrence and the SAS is that is that a good way of putting it was i think you know there were, there were a lot of um you know sort of parents grandparents to to the SAS mm. um, you know you had you know very specifically you had the commandos that they came out of I mean, you know, the, all the early members were, I think, probably actually all, but certainly virtually all were were, were members of the commandos um, who were looking for a more effective way of using their their energies and talents. Um, and you had the Long Range Desert Group, who were this organization of reconnaissance um, group, really, but did carry out raids in the desert of people who really understood the desert. These were you know, people formed by people who before the war had been desert travelers, you know, mm. that's what they did is they, you know, found new routes through the desert. And, and so, you know, they, they had the sort of reconnaissance background and the commandos had the, the more aggressive attacking, <coughs> excuse me, more aggressive attacking background, which, but then Lawrence was absolutely, you know, in, uh, in, in the family lineage, um, because you had, I mean, first of all, Lawrence was so well known. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you had Lowell Thomas, you know, hosting these enormous presentations of 10,000, you know, in America and then in Britain, 10,000 people at a time coming to the Royal Albert Hall to see the exploits of, of Lawrence. And of course, then his memoir. But of course, these things were immensely popular because you're coming out of the First World War, which you know, the folk memory of that, the shared memory of that was gruesome. Um, and so the, about the, you know, one of the few ways you could remember it in anything like a positive light was this exotic war in the desert that was carried out by, by Lawrence, which, you know, played on uh, so many, 
so many sort of um, elements that were important to the British. You had, you know, a, a military adventure and success, which was so different to to the, the 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 horrors of the Western Front. You had this idea of colonial confidence. You had, you know, the British lording it in in colonial lands. You had the sort of glamour of the Arabian Nights. Um, all of these elements together made it a very seductive story. Mm-hmm. Um, but also he was very successful. I mean, you know, not entirely all the time, but, you know, he, you know, he, he, he did achieve success, sabotage raids on railway lines in the Galilee, etc. And, and it, it had a big effect on not only the public, but people, well, people like Churchill. Winston Churchill and and the you know the first commander in the Middle East Archibald Wavell these people were very you know they, they liked the idea of Lawrence and also you know they they'd come out of this war where there was a, a sort of idea of of officers or you know senior officers as sort of bumbling fools um, and so any of these you know the idea of an irregular unit had a certain appeal, certain attraction, because it was sort of going over the head, bypassing these sort of bumbling, um, you know, military buffoons who just believed in a, you know, attack in numbers. Mm-hmm. That you know, it, the irregular units, which became very big, uh, you know, in the Second World War, particularly in the desert, you know, were a kind of antidote to to the idea, to the traditional military ideas, and and so, and that was very much. Sort of personified by by T. E. Lawrence, mm-hmm. and so much of that continues to this day. This idea of subterfuge and this idea of you know fabricated stories and yeah. origin stories. What's changed, and and what's remained constant with uh, with the SAS? Now, I have to say, you really, I think you should talk to somebody who is you know works with the modern day SAS. Mm-hmm. To really to answer this question, um, I you know I I am certainly not close enough to the to the modern day organisation. I mean, to the archive and to the association, yes, but not to the the, the members of the modern day or recent organisation. So, really, anything I I, I I say on this, you know, is is not necessarily with the, the authority I can speak of to other elements. Having said that, um, I do think you know the SAS, even though it was. The members during the Second World War were constantly told, you know, don't think of yourselves as an elite. Hmm. I think it was hard for them not to. And yeah. I think the leaders probably, you know, as you see from the, the, the section I read out, it was hard for the leaders not to imagine their, their own organization as a kind of elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that has kind of kept the, the organization running through the years and it's had a lot to live up to. And I think, you know, the, just the, the sense of having that to live up to has allowed it to live up to it. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it, it got the strongest possible start, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Um, and, and, and couldn't subsequently. I mean, it was actually disbanded at the end of the war um, and only got going again a few years later. Uh, but... Never actually quite stopped. There were little organizations, um, sort of war crimes investigation organizations and different things, which actually kept going, to, to, which were SAS organizations, which kept going until the point where it was, it was actually revived in the, in the, in the late 40s. And, 
And so the you know the the lineage does run through, the mm. reputation runs through, um, and so there was always uh, a lot to live up to and um, a great deal to build on. Final question for you, Josh Levine, and we, we so appreciate your time. Thanks for generously reading, too. I always like to ask, you know, many in our audience are over the age of 60. Mm. What are the life lessons that we can even learn today about resilience, self-sufficiency, you know, perseverance? What, what do we take away from the experiences of these soldiers? What an interesting question. Um, all right. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can think of a few. So perseverance, well... Mm. Commandos who became the first members of the SAS, they had failed um, as commandos. Their, their units had uh, their units been disbanded. They were left with nothing to do. Uh, they persevered, and out of out of that carcass, they created the SAS. Then again, and I haven't had time to go into it really, but the early SAS, the first raid, was a total disaster, mainly due to the weather, entirely due to the weather conditions, enormous storm in the desert, which was unheard of. Um, but again, the SAS very nearly failed. It should have been really disbanded after its first mission. But David Sterling, the leader, instead of just allowing that to happen, he first of all took them off. Instead of going back to Cairo, took them off to a, 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 a remote uh, base where, you know, Operation Crusader was going on at the time, which was a, a major push, and and he just tried to to lie low, tried tried not to allow the authorities any opportunity um, to to, um, to 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 to, to oh, well, suddenly I've lost my word, um, uh, and tried to find it tried to give no opportunity for 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 the SAS to be brought to a halt mm -hmm. but you know it it carried on you you've got the, the story i told earlier no mm -hmm. you've got the story of the hubris the SAS believed in themselves but they had to avoid hubris they had to be, avoid becoming too important or self important that's again another mm -hmm. lesson imagination it all came out of Dudley Clark. So, you know, even in this aggressive um, masculine world of, of special forces, you've got the importance of imagination and the importance of subtlety. There are ways around um, the, 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 the problems without necessarily using brute force. You've got um, Sterling's powers of persuasion, his, his, his use of um, uh, PR, because, you know, the SAS was um almost wound up at different periods you know when it came to the end in the desert a lot of people said well, what are the ss going to do they're a desert sabotage operation what are they going to do in italy subsequently what are they going to do in france well they found new ways of existing they found a, a, a new purpose each time so again this you know adaptability persuasion um pr and then being willing to take risks you know right at the very beginning two men were, were killed parachuting in very early training been very easy just to wrap it up at this point it's too dangerous but no they were willing to take risks and these two men named duffy and warburton were killed and jock lewis said at the time he called everyone together because they'd been grumbling about is this the kind of unit that kills its own members and and Jock Lewis said, right, if anyone doesn't want to be here, they're free to go. And everybody stayed. So they, they were all in it together. They understood what they were doing and what they were trying to do. And finally, I suppose, Bill Fraser, 
there's a lot to learn from Bill Fraser. You know, there's, well, so far as from the outside is concerned, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, remarkable man um, who possibly has never got his public due. So, yeah, there are a few things and they're, you know, imagination, subtlety, perseverance, willingness to take risks. They're all they're all lessons that, that I could but I could learn, but I probably choose not to. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Levine, author of the new book, SAS, The Authorized Illustrated History of the SAS, best-selling author of Dunkirk, our guest today. Thanks so much for your time. This book is, is really wonderful. Just gives us some life, life lessons, but it also represents some amazing historical context. Thanks for your time today. Have a great rest of your day, and please come back. Talk to us again about your work and all that you're doing, but congrats on this book, and my best to you. Thank you, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Not Old Better Show. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notoldbetter.com. Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Let's talk better. The Not Old Better Show. Hi, one final thing. Today's show was edited for length. To hear the full interview, please check out our website for this episode and all episodes at notold-better.com or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out your local radio stations to find out more about the Not Old Better show on podcast and radio. You can find us all over social media. Our Twitter feed is Not Old Better, and we're on Instagram at Not Old Better too. The Not Old Better show is a production of NOBS Studios. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and I hope you'll join me again next time to talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.